G'day dear listeners, Jono and Jason here to let you know that the Snark Tour will be happening again at 2016 this coming November. Are you excited, Jason? I'm super excited. I'm excited because I'm going to get to meet a load of people who normally I only get to interact with on the internet. So the idea that some of them are going to join us as we tour around the Holy Land and have a look at our Tanakhs and the context of the land and the food and the people that we're talking to. That's mind-blowing for me. I can't wait. Rabbi Tavia Singer will be with us as well as almost other special guests. So, Jono, someone's sitting at home and they're saying to themselves, I'd really like to find myself on the bus this year with all of my friends and my new friends and my old friends learning all about the snack and all this cool stuff. How do I do it? Yeah, well, you've got to go to the website. Go to truth2letteru.org. You'll click on Tanakh Tour of Israel 2016. That will take you to all the necessary details. You will leave a deposit and that will secure your place on the bus with us this November. you may be around the world and thank you for your company once again on truth to you.org that's truth number two letter you.org joining me is the director of education and counseling for jews for judaism in canada the website is jewsforjudaism.ca that's jewsforjudaism.ca welcome back to the program rabbi michael skoback how you doing there john Oh, my friend, I'm doing better than you, I'm afraid to say. And I just want to tell the listeners uh, how much I appreciate your dedication to the program. We did take a break from this uh, a new series that we've begun, Exploring Psalms. And uh, we started, of course, in Chapter 1. Today, we will be doing Chapter 2. We took a, a few weeks because it's, it's been Pesach. It's been a crazy time of year, a wonderful time of year. But unfortunately, you have caught a nasty, can I say it's a nasty cold? What, what is it you've got? <laughs> uh, a rose by any other name. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but the dedication of the man. Thank you so much, Rabbi Michael Skobek. He says, no, we can record. He said, I'm feeling chipper. Chipper was the word you used. <laughs> I said that. I can't believe I said that. <laughs> That's what you said. And so here we are, and we are in Psalm chapter 2. Now, uh, what we're doing is we're, we are exploring Psalms. We're going through the Psalms. We're looking at what, what was happening when this Psalm was written. Who was the author? What, uh, what is it about, of course? And also, what would Christianity have us believe in regards to this particular chapter? Now, last now in, in, in that um, particular theme, last uh, recording that we did, chapter one, uh, it didn't Christianity didn't have so much uh, to do with chapter one. When we come to chapter two, oh my goodness. <laughs> all the bells go a, off. All the bells go off. And so uh, we're going to be looking at that under the microscope as well. Now, with that in mind, Michael, I can read from my art scroll or I can continue to read from the New King James. What would you prefer me to read from? Should I do eeny, meeny, miny, mo? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, why don't you read the uh, New King James? We'll do that. And, and let me read through the chapter first, because uh, the reason why I ask, of course, you know, there's an enormous amount of trickery in the New King James. I'm going to read that. And you can point out, uh, we'll come back to where that trickery is. And uh, you can let us know what the actual text says. It begins like this. Now, first of all, I have a, a heading, Michael, uh, in Psalm chapter 2 in my New King James Study Bible, the Nelson's Study Bible. The Messiah's triumphant kingdom. And underneath that, there is a reference, a New Testament reference, Acts chapter 4, verse 23 to 31. We're gonna, we'll get there eventually. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed 
Now, anointed, I've got there with a capital A. We'll come back to that. Saying, uh, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. I have sent my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, O you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put their trust in him. That is Psalm chapter 2, at least the uh, Christian translation. Michael, where shall we begin? Okay, so, you know, it's interesting that as you go through the entire book of Psalms, we'll notice that almost all the Psalms, not all of them, but almost all of them have some kind of introduction. So uh, it might say a song of David, it might, it might have an uh, introduction telling you uh, about the musical instructions, and actually many Psalms begin, Lam Natseach, for the musician, or Psalms might begin a song of ascent, there are I think 15 of those. Mm-hmm. Um, some will say a song of Asaf, a song for the dedication of the temple. There's often an introductory phrase at the beginning of the psalm, but Psalm 2 just seems to begin abruptly. And the Talmud, interestingly, sees Psalm 1 and 2 as actually one psalm. It joins them together, yeah. It puts them together. Now, it, it seems like a very strange thing to do. We don't see a lot of obvious connection between these two psalms, but the Talmud says in Tractate Brachot 10a, that any psalm that David begins and ends with Ashrei, meaning we, we saw that last time, the, the first word in Psalm 1 was Ashrei, mm-hmm. fortunate or blessed or happy. Mm-hmm. So any time that he begins a psalm with Ashrei and ends the psalm with Ashrei, it's particularly beloved to David. Now, it turns out this is the only place that this happens in the book of Psalms. It makes it seem as if it happens occasionally, but... Psalm 1 begins with Ashrei, and the last uh, phrase in Psalm 2 is Ashrei kol hachosim bo, fortunate or happy uh, or blessed are all those who seek him or put their refuge in him. Um, So because of that, because Psalm 2 ends with the same word that Psalm 1 begins with, the Talmud says that this is really one long psalm. And it it seems like a different... uh, two different stories altogether. It seems very hard to piece these two together. Psalm 1, we saw, it basically discusses the difference between the righteous and the wicked. Although I didn't notice this until a few days ago, that it, when you go through Psalm 1, it speaks about the righteous as an individual, right? He who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked, Ha'ish, the man, it speaks about the righteous in the singular, and it contrasts them to the wicked, but it speaks about them in generic terms, the wicked, all of them. Uh, so it's interesting that within Psalm 1, you have this contrast between the righteous individual and all those wicked people. And Psalm 2 seems to take it beyond the realm of the individual to the realm of the national. There's a whole uh, conflict here, not between the, the, the wicked and the righteous individual, but between uh, the na- the national tensions, really, between 
Israel and the nations that are hostile to it. Uh, so on the simplest level, it's really basically uh, one continuation, meaning that um, it's really two treatments of the same theme, that in Psalm 1 we have the vindication of the righteous individual and the downfall of the individuals who are not righteous. And in Psalm 2, it's the vindication of the righteous nation and the downfall of all the nations that are hostile to it. Um, the pivot point, obviously, of Psalm 2, though, is back to the individual who represents the nation, which is the king, the Messiah. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll see, actually, later on, we get towards the end of Psalm 2, th- there do seem to be some reasons to connect it back to Psalm 1. Um, but I just wanted to throw that out as an introduction. Now, it's, it's an interesting thing that uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are not identified with an author. Uh, the reason why we have, in, uh, as I mentioned before in my New King James Study Bible, uh, a cross-reference in the, t- in, the, in the subheading of Psalm 2, Acts chapter 4, 23 to 31, is because it's, it is, in fact, the New Testament that identifies uh, the author of these Psalms, uh, particularly Psalm chapter 2, as David. Yeah, and I think that would we would we would agree with that. The most Jewish understandings is is that uh, you know other, unless there's a reason to assume otherwise that David is the author. Now it's interesting that Psalm one had six verses, Psalm two has twelve verses, and most commentaries see the twelve verses of Psalm two as broken up into four parts, each part having three verses. Mm-hmm. Um, the first three verses. And in each part, there's, uh, you know, there's, uh, people are being addressed. So in, in the first three verses, the first part, it's the nations of the world or the nations that surround Israel that are speaking against God and against his king. Those are the first three verses. Mm-hmm. The nations are addressing God and his king. In the next three verses, four to six, it's God that addresses these hostile nations. God speaks directly to them. In verses 7 through 9, the king relates the words of God to him, meaning what God spoke to the king, the king now uh, repeats and tells the audience. And then finally, in verses 10 to 12, the king addresses directly the hostile nations. So we'll begin with verse 1, obviously, where the the nations now here are really uh, the ones that are speaking. And the first phrase is hard to translate, actually. Lama rugshu goyim. Um, I found, you know, at least a half a dozen translations in the first six uh, Jewish versions that I picked up. There are probably more. Um, Some render this as, why are the nations in commotion? The word regesh in modern Hebrew means feelings or strong feelings. So why are they in a tizzy? Why are they in a commotion? Uh, Some render this as, why do they shout? I mean, I guess if you're all excited, you shout. Why did the nation? Hang on. Did yeah. you actually find a translation that said, why are they in a tizzy? That's Michael Scoback translation. Okay. <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> Is it tizzy or dizzy? I don't know. A tizzy. Uh, you, you make me dizzy, Miss Lizzie. Um, <laughs> why do the nations shout? Why do the nations gather? Many of the translations see this as they're gathering together. Why do the nations rage? Why are they excited? Why are the nations in turbulence? Why, you know, there's something going on with the nations here. And the next phrase, it's interesting that we will see that throughout the book of Psalms, there is this literary style of parallelism. So you'll have a phrase that's basically repeated in the second part of the verse. So the first part is why 
uh, the nation's all excited. Why are they gathering? And then, and Le'umim Yehogurik, why do the people speak in vain? Or why do they plan in vain? Or why do they speak emptiness? Mm-hmm. Um, some of the commentaries actually did some interesting uh, fine-tuning to explain the differences between the different segments of the verse. So, there are two words that are used here for the nation. One is, in the first half, goyim, which are actual nations. Mm-hmm. And the Malbim points out that this is usually describing nations that are defined geographically, like a geographical uh, nation, like the you know a country on a map. Right. Whereas the second part of the verse uses the phrase le'umim, which are really peoples. And they don't have to be defined geographically. These could be people that are uh, united in the common philosophy or common belief system. So th- that's why he says the first half of the verse describes the nations who are gathering because these people come together physically, mm-hmm. whereas the second part, which describes peoples who may not be together in the same country geographically, they speak in vain, they plot emptiness, they plan, they can communicate. Like, like Islamic State, for example, it's not, a, it's not a country, but it's a people with a common agenda or a common philosophy, if you like, to, uh, yeah, to I think, achieve whatever. Uh, they would like to see themselves as a country, but you're right, they're an ideology. Mm. Uh, that would like to sort of upgrade to becoming an actual <laughs> nation. Um, so there, for some reason, we don't know yet, uh, the, the world here, the nations are, are all excited. They're all, uh, you know, going nuts. And in verse mm. 2, right, we see what's going on. Yityatsvu malche aretz, the kings of the earth take their stand or they assemble, they stand ready, they rise up. So the kings here are rising up. And so in the first verse, it was talking about nations and peoples, but here it's going to the leadership, that the kings are rising up, and the Roznim, the, the lords or the rulers, knows do yachtav, they conspire together, they take counsel together, against what? So it says against Hashem, against God, and against his anointed one, against his Messiah. This is the... Jewish king, this is God's king, who is referred to as an anointed one, meaning that we know from the scriptures that the Jewish kings were anointed with oil. Mm-hmm. Um, we see now I've, first. I've, yeah, I've, I've got now, as I mentioned before, I've got anointed uh, with a capital A, thereby what, what, what my new King James means by that is that uh, they're subscribing deity to this anointed by putting a capital at the beginning. But uh, we know that, uh, as you mentioned, the kings of Israel are anointed. Uh, are we talking about a king of Israel? Are we talking about David? Are we talking about a, um, a messianic king, that is an eschatological king? Or are we, are we actually talking about Israel? Who is this anointed one talking? Who belongs to this uh, description? That's a $64,000 question here. Okay. You know, I'm surprised that they didn't translate this in the New King James as against God and against his Messiah. I mean, hmm. Usually they translate Mashiach as Messiah. Um, they sort of take the edge off of it here by rendering it as his, uh, the anointed one rather than just saying straight out the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are basically two approaches among the Jewish commentaries. One is that they they pinpoint it to a particular king, historical king, which is David himself. Um, and it's speaking about the opposition that uh, came up, that arose to David's uh, kingship. Um, we know, for example, that shortly after the, the tribes got together and all anointed him as their king, mm-hmm. they accepted him as their king. So in the second book of Samuel, chapter 5, 
were told that the Philistines, as soon as they heard that David, you know, was the, now the the ruler over all the tribes, um, they came to attack. And a few chapters later, in Second Samuel chapter ten, the Arameans come to attack. So David's consolidation of the kingship uh, got people nervous, mm. and you know they were anticipating that you know if this powerful king you know, begins flexing his muscles, uh, it's going to cramp our style, and, you know, we want to sort of nip this in the bud. So there was opposition, and not just opposition, you know, with letters to the editor, there were actually, you know, attacks, there were invasions. So um, one approach is that this is a psalm speaking about the um, opposition to the kingship of David in his lifetime. The other way it is seen in the commentaries is more, as you said, eschatological, that it's speaking about the eschatological anointed one, which we refer to as the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know, you know, if you go through the book of Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39, if you go through the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, we know that in the end times, there's going to be a massive invasion of Israel by the nations of the world. Uh, and it's interesting that the leader of Israel at that time will not really be the Davidic uh, anointed one. It's going to really be, in Jewish tradition, the Mashiach ben Yosef. Um, because the the Davidic Messiah doesn't really rise up until shortly after these attacks begin. Mm-hmm. But um, one way in which this chapter is seen is that it's referring to some anointed uh, you know, person of God uh, really in the end times. And so we know that's going to happen as well. Um, but I think there are two things that, that we need to observe here, two things to notice. That number one, what is very clear from this verse is that this anointed one, this Messiah, is not God. Um, because the verse distinguishes between God and his Messiah. It doesn't say mm. God the Messiah or the Messiah God. It's God clearly as differentiated from his Messiah. Um, and secondly, in the New Testament, we didn't see any occasions where uh, Gentile nations came to fight or wage war against Jesus or against his followers. Meaning that whatever this uh, chapter 2 is describing, it had nothing to do with the life and career of Jesus. Now, many Christians would have to say, well, this is talking about you know the the return of Jesus and this, the end times when he comes back in the second coming, but again, that doesn't really um, help you apply it to the life of Jesus. And we see that throughout the New Testament, you know, mm. it's interesting that it's specifically verse seven, which speaks about um, you know the son here, like the, the um, God, God says to the king, "You are my son." Mm. It's there in the New Testament. Specifically, applies this chapter to Jesus. It jumps upon it, yeah. Yeah. So it, it, they they do try to associate this chapter with Jesus during his actual lifetime, but there is no association. Meaning that it's just basically wrenching verses out of context because it's very clear that the context of this chapter two in Psalms is one where. There's actual a, a war, there's, there's fighting, there's opposition mm. between whoever it is and these hostile nations. And this is the way that it's done in my New King James Study Bible. In the study notes of uh, chapter 2, verse 2, uh, it says, Lord refers to the Father. His anointed, with a capital A, refers to the capital S, Son, is what it says. The word conveys a sense of royalty. The kings were anointed. The kings of the earth would attempt to withstand the very 
king, capital K, of the universe. All of a sudden, it's not the king of Israel, it's the king of the universe. A little bit of sleight of hand there. Yeah, I mean, they have to do a little bit of bobbing and weaving to, you know, mm. to, to make it work out. But we see that what's going on in this psalm is that the, you know, the, the, the nations and the, the peoples of the world you know, are, are excited. Something's getting them upset. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not really sure yet in this psalm why they're so excited and upset. <clears throat> but they say in verse 3, they say, let us cut their cords, mosrosemo, see what that word means in a second, and cast off their ropes. So what is this referring to? Why, why are they saying, um, you know, let's cut their cords and cast off mm-hmm. their ropes? So there are three ways that I've seen it explained. One is more limited. Uh, if you understand this, is speaking about the opposition to King David himself. So the, the the opponents of David, let's say the Philistines, may have been um, plotting to somehow sever the bonds of agreement and um, you know sort of unity between the different tribes of Israel that came together to support David. Meaning, that if they feel threatened by David's. Um, you know, uh, solid reign and his mm-hmm. united. I mean, look, we're we're going through election season in the United States, where it doesn't look like the president's going to have widespread support if he gets elected or she gets mm-hmm. elected. So, what was scary was that the, the all the twelve tribes were were pretty securely behind David, and they were a powerful nation. So, one way this is understood is that they want to somehow uh, disrupt the unity among the tribes themselves. Um, a, probably a better rendering is that the nations felt threatened by a secure and powerful Israel. And so these references to the cords and the ropes, really, they're talking about Israel is seen as a political, political threat, that they felt they, they're now going to be under the control of Israel, they'll be restrained by Israel. These are what cords and the ropes represent. Probably the best way of understanding it, though, and we'll see this is consistent with the rest of the psalm, mm-hmm. and this is really developed beautifully by Rashim Shemrafal Hirsch in his analysis of the psalm and in the psalms in general, is that <clears throat> we know that the nation of Israel are supposed to be a light to the nations. We yep. have a mandate to really teach the world about the ways of God, and ultimately this will be fulfilled in the messianic realm and under mm-hmm. all the powerful uh, messianic kings that we've had. So the word in the first phrase here, mosrosemu, mosrosemo, cords, but it has as its root also the word musar, which means restraint, moral discipline. And so what they seem to be uh, uh, rebelling against is the idea that if the nation of Israel and their kings are able to succeed in their ultimate mission, their ultimate mission is not to exert political control over the rest of the world, but it is to uh, basically bring moral clarity mm-hmm. and moral vision and yep. self-discipline to the world, and that's what they're they're rebelling against. Yep. Um, so that they they basically want to cut this off of them. They don't want this moral restraint and self-discipline. Um, this is this is the uh, interpretation that I'm inclined to lean towards, and one of the reasons for that is because it says in, in verse 3, uh, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. 
And if the there is in reference to the Lord and his anointed and his king, uh, then that would make more sense to me rather than perhaps the king and the people of Israel. The bonds and the cords are in reference to the Torah, uh, the light which uh, Israel is to shine that, uh, that is given by our creator. That just rings true to me. Yeah, I think we'll see it as, as the psalm goes along that that really interpretation bears, uh, bears itself out. Um, now, now we're going to move into the next part of the psalm. The next three mm-hmm. verses is where God now speaks directly to the nations. So I, we've seen that the nations are all upset. You know, we know that we know what's upsetting them now. And in verse four, God, you know, it says He sits in heaven. He dwells in heaven. He who dwells in heaven—that doesn't refer to God directly. Mm. So that God is the one who dwells in heaven. Will laugh, mm. and the Lord will mock them. I mean, you can imagine the scene here is that. You know, uh, I always think of, you know, going back to the Exodus story that, you know, the Almighty decimated the Egyptians, these ten plagues and then the splitting of the sea. And, you know, there was a a year worth of these incredible supernatural miracles that totally devastated Egypt and showed God's absolute control over every aspect of nature and creation. And then these nutcases from Mali, <laughs> what, what, what was in their mind? Like, wh- you know, who in the world would have started up with Israel at that point? Mm, mm. You know, so you would think that God is going to look down at them and say, what are you, crazy? Mm. You know, <laughs> the interesting like, thing about this is that it says uh, in the beginning of chapter 4, uh, he shall laugh, and I've got, he shall hold them in derision. Now, he, he's laughing in a mocking sense uh, of, of his opposition, and then he shall speak to them in his wrath. So he's angry with them, and it says, uh, and distress them in his deep displeasure. He's angry with them, he is displeased with them, yet he, he laughs mockingly at them. Yeah, because, like, I mean, it's, it's pathetic. You know, if they understood who they were dealing with, you know they're plotting. <laughs> they're they're getting together, and you know the the beginning of the psalm speaks about them. You know almost as if they're they're having these secret meetings of what we're going to do about the Jewish problem. You know it's it's not a you know a, a bunch of ragtag people that are in some ghetto. You know they're talking about the nation that God is behind and the nation that God is supporting, and you know this is the anointed one that represents God in the world, and obviously. Uh, you know, they're dealing here not just with uh, the people of Israel, they're dealing with the Lord of the universe. And God is, you know, looking down at this and saying, what are they, out of their minds? Mm. So it's pathetic. Their scheming is just all in vain. And obviously, I mean, we can't really speak about God being angry. I mean, Maimonides speaks about this at length, that these are just, you know, human terms that we use to express, you know, in the terms that are meaningful to us. Um, you know, is, it, is it really uh, not something that we can, can consider that God expresses wrath? I, well, I we don't, personally we don't, don't have about, a problem with that. We, we, it's hard to speak about God being angry or getting angry. What we can say is that when we look at God's actions, we would describe it as anger. But my mind is, is just concerned about the idea that God um, you know, doesn't change. So to have changing emotions... Um, you know, it sort of interferes with at least how Maimonides understood the nature of God. 
you know, it's it's sort of humanizing God to have him just a big human being who gets. That's happy. interesting because surely he can be consistent and yet express. Uh, surely he, yeah. Well, that's something interesting to think about. I personally, I would have no problem with uh, the diversity of emotion that God would express uh, in the text. Uh, understanding that he is consistent throughout. Uh, yeah, Maimonides, if you, if you get into his <laughs> philosophy system, he was very, very, um, you know, he, he was concerned about not conceiving of God too much in human terms, that, that God ultimately is is not human. He's not a big, powerful human being, and mm. he's different than us. And so mm. he, Maimonides says that when the Bible uses these kind of terms, this kind of language, it's using the kind of language which is meaningful to us, meaning we would see this as an expression of anger. But he's saying that God in God, as God qua God, you know, doesn't have emotions like we have emotions. So our personal expression of anger uh, is not to be equated with yeah, God's like expression of anger. We, we should um, yeah, uh, I mean, examine the context of, of such statements and try and understand what that means. Yeah, if he stubs uh, his toe, he doesn't curse and say, you know. <laughs> right, yeah, that's right. <laughs> no. Um, um but he says, he goes on to say to the, uh, uh, he addresses them, I suppose, and says, yet I have set, don't you people know that I've set my king on my holy hill he, uh, of Zion? He affirms that to them as if yeah, to say, I mean, he what says, you're, the point of what you're doing? Right, you're opposing me. He says, you know, don't think that by attacking Israel and their king, you know, you're going after this little nation. Because Israel isn't always, is always a little nation. We're never mm. going to be a billion people. So God is saying to these to these nations, you're you're starting up with me. You know these are my people, and so he he says here, right? I myself in verse six, I myself have anointed my king. It's he's not just a, a, a you know the, the leader of Israel. This is the king that you know God is saying that, that I've put him on the throne, and you're starting up with me. Mm. So God is trying to let these nations know what the big picture is here. You know, they could easily lose sight of this. You know, they could easily just think of, you know, if they're not God conscious, right, they could just see in terms of world politics, mm -hmm. what's Israel? You know, the <laughs> great startup nation, you know, but after all, they're just 15 million people in a little tiny country the size of New Jersey. Um, you know, God is saying, no, <laughs> it's not just that. Uh, you know, behind the scenes, they've got the creator of every molecule of existence behind them. Uh, mm. So don't mess up, don't mess around with them. So now is when the psalm gets interesting. Until now, it's been sort of simple. Uh, now we go because to the, the voice. The voice changes here in verse seven, right? Yes. Now we're going to the king that that really recounts what what, what God told him. And, and in verse 7, let's say it's David that's speaking. That would be the simplest mm -hmm. way of reading the psalm. Sure. Uh, the first phrase is very, very hard to translate. Asaper el chok. I have a number of ways of rendering it. I am obligated to proclaim. I will speak on behalf of the pronouncement. I will tell of the decree. I'll recount it as a statute. I mean, none of these translations seem to make any sense even. Um, but David is basically starting off by saying, I'm going to have to say something here. What is it? So what he's going to have to say is, Hashem Amar Eli, that God said to me, B'ni Ata, you are my son. Ani hayom yilditicha, yilditicha. I have begotten you this day. 
So is it possible to speak about David or some other Davidic king being God's son and that they were begotten by God? Um, the truth is we know from Scripture that God describes the Jewish people uh, generically as his son, as his firstborn. Mm-hmm. That's in yes. Exodus 4.22. Yep. We see that in Second Samuel 7.14, um, God specifically refers to Solomon as mm. his son. He says, I will be a By father. Name. Right. And he says, I'll be a father to him, and he'll be a son to me. That's recapitulated in First Chronicles 28.6. And we see in Psalm 89, verses 27 to 28, regarding David, that God says, he will cry to me that you are my father, my Lord, the rock of my salvation, and I, in return, will make him my firstborn. Mm. Um, interestingly, by the way, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 32, it speaks of God literally giving birth to the nation of Israel. Um, so the, the, these kind of terms about someone being God's son and God giving birth to them, it doesn't imply divinity, as obviously all Christian uh, understandings of this chapter assume, right? Their assumption is that if it's speaking about God's son, it, it implies deity. And clearly, Samuel, Solomon was not divine, was not a god. David was not divine. The mm. Jewish people as a nation are not gods. Um, so there's sort of a tendency, um, you know, for when the Christian ear uh, hears these words, you know, son of God, God's son, um, to sort of make the jump and assume that it's describing divinity, um, that's just a misunderstanding, really, of these terms. Um, obviously, what it means is it's, it's a way of expressing a special closeness, a special relationship. Obviously, mm-hmm. it's not a literal father-son relationship, but it uses that metaphor, like, by the way, the Bible does all over the place. For example, in describing the closeness of a relationship between uh, God and the people of Israel. So there's the imagery of a husband and a wife, or um, you know, uh, uh, father and children. I mean, these are all images that, again, they're used in the Bible because they evoke a certain reaction in the reader. Mm. Um, you know, if it would have said uh, politician and uh, citizen, <laughs> right. there's, there's no you know, there's no inner feeling of warmth and closeness. So. The Bible uses these terms because they are uh, powerful expressions. And so, now, let, let me just yeah. ask you before you continue in, in uh, verse 7, you are my son. Just to clarify, because we're going to talk about this a little later on, uh, the word in Hebrew for son used in that uh, phrase? So, so the, the root is the word ben. Mm-hmm. Ben is son. And here it's my son. So it has the, the suffix of the, the yud at the end, beni. beni. Beni would be the way of saying ben sheli. Ben sheli is beni. Um, so, Beni is my son, and Ben would be just son. Excellent. Uh, and you're right, you're, you're, you're sort of setting us up for an important <laughs> Just passage. want to clarify that before we get yes. uh, any further. Uh, it goes on in verse 8, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, that's also quoted in the New Testament. I believe it's... Uh, I think it's Revelation chapter 2. Oh, it is. It's Revelation chapter 2, verse 27. It's in red, Michael. It's in red. Very exciting when it's in red. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting that, you know, God is basically saying um, to the king, ask of me, 
and I'll make the nations your inheritance. By the way, this again reinforces the idea that the king is not God, meaning if the king here was God, he wouldn't need God to give him anything. He would have mm-hmm. it already. Um, but what does it mean that I'm going to make the nations your inheritance? By the way, when it comes to the, to the life of King David, so in First Chronicles 14.17, we're told that when David consolidated his uh, reign and his uh, rulership really spread, so mm-hmm. it says in that verse, David's reputation spread throughout all of the lands and God cast a fear of him over all the nations. So we see that in David's lifetime, this was taking place, that you know, there, were, there was sort of this, the, the spread of the power of the nation. Uh, in David. We, knew, we know that after David Solomon's lifetime, for sure, the, you know, the nation became very dominant in the world. Um, but I don't think that's what it really necessarily has to only refer to. Um, we know again that, that the ultimate design of the scripture is that Israel's impact on the world will not be uh, to exert any kind of political dominance or a political rulership over the world, mm-hmm. but the, the nation is to be the, become the teachers of all the nations. And ultimately, what is described here is the submission of the world to the moral law and mm-hmm. the, the, the Torah teachings that God wants Israel to spread. Um, and again, we see that you know the Bible is full of references to this being ultimately accomplished one day. You know, we see many passages. For example, Isaiah chapter sixty speaks about all the nations coming to the light of Israel, or Zechariah mm. chapter eight, where it speaks about the nations coming to the people and asking them to teach them about the ways of God. So, what this is speaking about here is when we receive the inheritance of the nations. It's really an expression that one day um, the nations will really come to Israel for what Israel was created to give them. Mm. And what's interesting is the way Shamshim Frel Hirsch sees verse 9 is that it's not necessarily uh, a directive to go out and smash them with rods of iron. What it really is saying is that hopefully, hopefully, they will be inspired and persuaded to follow the moral instruction of Israel on their own. I mean, that's the, 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 hopefully it won't have to come to that. But if you have to break them, you know, what's going to have to happen is they'll have to be broken of their opposition. They'll have to be broken mm. of their stubbornness. Putting, Again, putting, down, putting down the rebellion that we read about in, in verse 3, is that, is that fair? And it doesn't have to necessarily only be the the rebellion with uh, you know a, a physical attacks, meaning that there is sort of a there is a, a reluctance uh, and almost an, um, a, a reluctance of the world to embrace the ways of Israel, and so it's really this is more of a philosophical and moral battle than a, than a geopolitical military fight that's going on. Mm-hmm. So the way Hirsch would see this is that. It's not necessarily describing them being literally smashed with rods of iron. These, again, are metaphors for them becoming submissive to the moral instruction of Israel. And it may, it may require, at some point, the use of force. Hopefully, it will not. Hopefully, they won't have to you know, uh, have that happen. Mm. But even if there has to be the application of force... 
you know, it may just be the flexing of the muscles of a mighty Israel. Mm. Um, but, but I think really it's, 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 it's um, you know, it's sort of them becoming overwhelmed by the truth uh, that Israel represents. And again, when you go through the rest of the Bible, taking the scripture as a general context, you see that happening. You see that in Jeremiah chapter 16, the nations on their own will come to recognize the falsehood of the ways they've been walking. So it doesn't have to be necessarily uh, a physical battle where people are physically pummeled into submission, but by just exposure to the message of Israel and the teachings of Israel and the light of Israel, that they'll be broken of their resistance. And I think that you could read this very easily on a non-physical level. But for the person who likes to see you know, blood and gore, uh, maybe it is speaking about for a more R-rated reading of the of the chapter. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps we're talking about actual rods of iron. But yeah, um, but you know, we'll wait and see. Yes. the last three verses. Now, therefore, now, therefore, be wise. So oh, these kings. three, by the way, this this last triad, right? Because these are, we had four triads. Mm. This is where the king is not speaking about the nations, which he was doing in the previous three speaking verses. Too. Directly to them, yes. Mm. So, uh, so now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Now, if we stop there for a second, when I read that, it reminded me of, uh, of Isaiah chapter 53. Because there we have the, uh, the kings and the nations, the kings of the, of the earth saying, Ah, we were wrong. Exactly. We didn't understand. But there's now gonna, we understand. There's going to be an aha moment. An aha moment. Yeah. Uh, so, but I think that's, that's what he's saying here. I think what David's saying here is to the nations, look, now that you guys understand that God is behind us, I mean, that's been the, what, what the message was in the previous mm. verses. So now that you understand who we are <laughs> and who's behind us, he's saying, smarten up, right? Get wise up, meaning smarten up. And get with the program, right? Mm. Um, because in the, David, the king here is saying, look, you have seen in the previous verses that I've been given permission to knock some sense into you if necessary, mm. right? So, you know, this, this is, uh, you know, maybe not so much of a threat physically, but uh, maybe it is a threat physically. Maybe, um, it is. you know, the thing also just, and this is a little bit of a, uh, a side note. But the thing I love about this, uh, as an as an eschatological uh, perspective, a, a messianic era uh, a chapter, if you like, um, we often hear these days about how uh, anti-Zionism is the new anti-Semitism, and and I love that it is in uh, chapter two, verse six, where God says, "I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion." Don't you understand? This is what I've done. This is the importance of Zion. It, it, it you know. I, I love that that's the clarification to the kings of the nation and, and uh, those who would uh, set up rebellion against the Lord and against his anointed. Nevertheless, he, he says uh, in verse 10, Now therefore be wise, O kings, and be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with, trem- rejoice with trembling. Okay, Michael. <laughs> so, by the way, in the, in the previous verse, the, the same word comes up about being disciplined. Right, what he's saying is submit to God's moral law and discipline. I mean, that's what this whole psalm is really about. It's really a, a plea with the nations that get with the program. And the program is not for you to be beaten up by Israel. The program is for you to be instructed by Israel. And so what he says in verse 11 is 
that you should serve God with awe. Fear is often the word that's used. Um, I'm not sure fear really captures it properly, mm. but it means really that we should serve God being in awe of his greatness, mm. being in awe of his majesty, being in awe of just who we're dealing with. When just the realization that we're dealing with, we're, we're speaking here about the creator of all of existence, and not just the creator, but the one who oversees and supervises and controls every molecule in the entire realm of the universe, everywhere. Um, that should be overwhelming. We, it, we should be almost frozen and paralyzed and frozen when you think of that. Mm. I remember when I was in eighth grade, the, my science teacher spoke about outer space. And he said it, it goes on forever, infinitely. And I remember I started crying in the class because my, my little eighth grade mind was trying to picture space not ending. Like, yeah. it was hard for me to grasp how big it was, and it just my brain started to hurt. I was crying. Yeah, I can, look, I can, <laughs> I can really relate to that. As, uh, as an adult, in fact, only, well, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I remember standing out in a paddock in the middle of the country, looking uh, at a, there was no moon that night, and it was a crystal clear night, and looking at the Milky Way, and standing there in, in awe, yeah, and you're right, in awe, and realizing that this is our God and this is our creator. And I have to say, I felt like I didn't have a reason to feel that I should be in trouble, but I felt like I should be in trouble. I felt like uh, I felt a sense of fear. And it's that kind of fear that you feel as you were just explaining, uh, beholding something with great awe. It was like, oh, my goodness. I can't even comprehend what it is that I'm looking at, and this is my creator. Oh, I'm a little bit, I, I guess I could say I was a little bit trembling, I guess. Yeah, and also, I guess you feel very small in that. You very, know, very, very small. small. A piece of dust on a piece of dust. Yeah, and what, what sometimes they, they speak about is the fear is really that once you are in touch with this idea, once you're in touch with the reality of God, and you have a life that... Um, centers on being conscious of God's presence at all times. So you're in a relationship with God at that point. And mm. the fear is of losing the relationship, meaning the fear is that once you have a relationship with God, the fear is messing up your relationship and doing the wrong mm. things. That's where the fear comes in. But then, paradoxically, it says rejoice with trembling. Um, now, th there's a whole body of literature just on these two words, um, you know, go through Jewish sources on this. It's quite amazing. But one idea is that it's saying that once you've come to recognize uh, the awesomeness of God, so it says now, celebrate, you're coming to serve him in awe. Meaning that when it says rejoice with trembling, what it's saying is celebrate, right? The fact that you've come to tremble in his presence. I mean, the fact that you've come to this place of understanding that there's a God that created every atom in the universe um, you know, and that's an awesome thing. Celebrate that. Rejoice mm -hmm. with that. And then it's saying really as well, and even when you're rejoicing, you should still feel awe of God. You should be in fear of God. Often mm -hmm. people, when they're rejoicing, they get lost in that and they lose track um, of the fact that they still are standing in the presence of God. They've got to sort of be balanced. Uh, then we come to verse 12, which is really the, uh, you know. This is a big one. This is the most, I guess, controversial part of this chapter. Um, you read it Shall before. Yeah, I'll just let me read it again just to remind everyone. This is the Christian translation, and I even have a little asterisk in front of this. 
kiss the sun, capital S, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who put that trust in him. Yeah. What do you have in the Hebrew? Okay. So the Hebrew here is Nashku Bar. Nashku Bar. Um, the way it's you, I'll give you a few traditional Jewish translations. Mm-hmm. Um, some translate it not as kiss the sun, but as yearn for, your pur- for purity or desire the pure mm-hmm. or embrace purity or worship in purity or do homage in purity. Now, why do they have these translations? So, first of all, let's look at the word nashku. The root is probably the Hebrew word teshuka. Nashku is from the word teshuka, which means desire. Mm-hmm. And that's why they have this idea of yearning for something, embracing, doing homage, worshiping, desiring. Um, now, we know that, that desire often expresses itself in a nishika, which is a kiss. So the word nashku could be a directive to a group of people to kiss. But kiss probably is just a uh, an awkward way of saying what, an awkward way of translating what the, the meaning of the verse really is here. Um, kiss is an expression of yearning, of getting close, of embracing. Mm-hmm. Now, the word bar appears 22 times in the Tanakh. Um, 15 times it means grain. It's a word that's used for grain. Mm-hmm. Um, and seven times it means pure or clean. Mm-hmm. There's a variant of bar, which is bor, uh, spelled basically the same way, and it appears seven times in the Tanakh, and it also means pure. Um, and that's why it's, this is a phrase translated as, if you want to say, kiss, purity. But mm-hmm. that, again, it sounds bizarre, so that's why it's translated as yearn for purity or embrace purity or do homage in purity or desire purity, etc. Sure. Now, what's interesting is that early on in Christianity, um, it was not translated as kiss the sun. That really doesn't start until about the 16th century, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. The Latin Vulgate, which was done in the 5th century, has the translation worship in purity, just like any modern Jewish translation. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, this kiss the sun uh, wording is relatively recent um, in the sense that it's in the it's, 1500s. It's interesting. I, I even have that in the, as I said, there's an asterisk next to these uh, phrases, and it says um, the Septuagint and the Vulgate read, now I've got embrace discipline. The Targum uh, reads receive instruction. Yeah, so I, I didn't check the Targum or the Septuagint, but the Vulgate has basically worship in purity. And um, I want to just spend a few minutes looking at why this sort of post-16th century Christian translation mm. is, is uh, problematic. Um, first of all, it is a poor translation, as I'll explain in a minute. But if you had to use it, meaning if you had to translate this phrase as kiss the sun, then it would obviously be a directive to embrace, a directive to the nations to embrace God's son that we saw back in verse 7, which would either be David himself, according to the simplest way of reading the psalm, or the future messianic king, um, if you had to translate it as kiss the son. But there are several problems. I'll just mention three problems with this translation. Number one is that bar is not a Hebrew word for son. Right. right. We saw, as you mentioned, back in verse 7, that the Hebrew word for son, and it appeared in verse 7, is ben. Mm. Ben is the word for son, not bar. 
Now, bar is an Aramaic word that could either mean son or son of. For example, we have the bar mitzvah, mm. right, which means son of commandments. the construct form of the commandments, meaning that mm. he's now, uh, you know, he's now uh, pertains to the commandments. Um, but why would you have an Aramaic word appearing here in the Book of Psalms? There are no Aramaic words in the Book of Psalms. You do find. Uh, much of Daniel is written in Aramaic, and you see a few Aramaic words creep into the book of Proverbs, but there are no Aramaic words in the book of Psalms, and why would you... Um, Go cherry-picking in other languages to suit well, your own agenda. especially when you already had a word used just a few verses earlier. In the earlier, same chapter, a perfectly good Hebrew word that is used... For the word son, right? Yeah. And also, um, why suddenly switch to Aramaic here? Um, another problem is that nashku bar, if you're using the Aramaic bar, mm. would only mean kiss a son. Um, kiss the son would have to be nashku bara. Um, bar is not the definite article. So even if you wanted to say this is an Aramaic phrase that somehow slipped into the book of Psalms, you couldn't translate it as kiss the son. It would have to be kiss a son. And it would be mm. a different Aramaic word for kiss the son. And finally, um, you know, why would it be that Christian translations, whenever they came across this word bar, throughout the other places in Tanakh, um, 21 other places in Tanakh, where they always translated as purity or as grain, depending on mm -hmm. the context, mm -hmm. um, why did they translate it properly in all those other places? But here is the only place where they change it and they Very say, doesn't question. mean. So, th th this is obviously a very, very um, problematic translation, especially since we saw that in the earliest translations done under Christian hands, they didn't even consider this idea of kiss the sun. Um, and so, when it fits into the uh, motif and the theme of the entire psalm, what it's saying in verse 12, what the king, what, the, what David is saying to the nations is, look, I, he's been urging them to get with the program, to smarten up, to embrace God's message, to embrace God's discipline. So now he says to them in his concluding remarks, he says, look, embrace purity. That's what he's urging them to do. That's the message throughout the psalm, by the way. The mm. message has not been to embrace him. I mean, he shouldn't fight against me if I'm the king of God, anointed by God. But he's been urging them all along to embrace God's ways, embrace God's discipline, and grace, embrace God's messages. And so he's saying here, embrace, yearn for purity, and if you don't, right, God's going to grow wrathful. And look at this, it's very interesting. And your way will be doomed. Now, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, it said, I'm sorry, it's not verse 1, I think it's towards the end of the chapter, in verse mm -hmm. chapter 1. It says, V'derech reshaim toved, the way of the wicked will be doomed. Mm. So it's really the exact same expression. We saw that the end of chapter 1 spoke about the individuals who are wicked and their way will be doomed. And now the king here is speaking to the nations of the world and saying to them as, as peoples that unless you get with the program, your way will be doomed. And it's another reason for connecting Psalm 1 with Psalm 2. Because basically, the, uh, the consequences of not following God are exactly the same in both of these psalms. 
because um, in a brief moment, God's anger will flare, it will blaze. Happy are those, Ashrei Kol Hosebo, happy are those who put their trust in him or who take refuge in him. Mm, mm. So just to clarify, verse 12 says, uh, in, in, at least in the Christian translation, they would have us believe, uh, kiss the sun, uh, capital S, therefore ascribing deity, therefore they're asserting that this is about Jesus. So really they're saying, uh, kiss Jesus, lest Jesus be angry, and you perish in the way when Jesus' wrath is kindled but a little. Uh, blessed are those who put their trust in Jesus. It's what they're trying to assert. Yeah, and obviously, you know, if you insisted, again, I mentioned that if you insist that the word bar there means son, it would not be God himself, though. It's talking about the son back in verse 7, where it's God that anoints this king who is the son. So, yeah, there's no divinity, there's no deity that's attached to the son that's mentioned earlier in uh, the psalm. That's very Mm. clear. So just to read again, just going back to uh, the verse you highlighted, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. And our chapter, chapter 2, today ends with, Blessed are those who put their trust in him, and Ashrei, as you mentioned, is the word uh, that it ends with. Yes. Beautiful. Yeah. I can't believe that we did it in, un- in under an hour. <laughs> That's mind-blowing. There must, there must be a God. <laughs> thank you so much, Rabbi Michael Skobeck. And again, thank you so much for coming on when you're uh, not entirely 100%. And may you be um, 100% very, very soon. Uh, but thank you for your dedication to the program. Exploring Psalms, dear listeners, we will get to Chapter 3 sometime very soon. Looking forward to having you back on the program, my dear friend. And until then, be blessed and set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom. Shalom.